0: There are so many powerful arguments for doing business in a sustainable, circular, responsible and ethical way. It's no longer an opt-in for better businesses. Consumers are voting with their feet and their pocketbooks. That being so, there are incredible opportunities for smart entrepreneurs who can demonstrate that they offer products, services and experiences that deliver to the new standard. Robust and responsible supply chains, proper provenance of materials sustainable manufacture, values-led leadership, you name it, discriminating consumers want to know you're doing it. Today, we're hearing from two exceptional businesses run by female entrepreneurs who've both created such brands. Sian Fernandez-Wong is the co-founder of Cocoon, the UK's first luxury bag rental service. Their collection consists of almost a 1,000 styles from leading brands like Chanel, Gucci, Fendi, Prada, and others, alongside an unrivalled vintage curation. Whitney Francis Falk is the founder and CEO of New York-based ZZ Driggs, a brand that offers fine furniture on demand, making it easy and affordable for consumers and businesses to rent or buy, or both. All the pieces are created by independent designers. It's a pleasure to welcome Sian and Whitney to the program. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. We start with Whitney Francis Falk of ZZ Driggs. The brand was founded to challenge and innovate a sector ripe for change. ZZ Driggs offers both a new way of serving a discerning customer base with great furniture for the home and a platform to promote the very best independent designers. Whitney, a warm welcome. It's great to have you with us. We've seen the disruptive power of the sharing economy across sectors, from haute couture with things like rent the runway to transportation, Uber, for better or for worse. Can you just give us a bit of a sense first up, though, on your view on that broader shift, why that makes what ZZ Driggs does so intuitive?
1: The sharing economy is such a beautiful thing in our minds because it is all predicated on goods that last. And that's the most important thing that we should be focused on as both businesses as well as customers and consumers. You know, we really need to be in the business of dealing with products that are built to last and not so single use and not so crummy that they're going to fall apart just after a few years worth of use, which is a large swath of the global furniture manufacturing scene and retailers, what they're offering. So that brings me truly so much joy thinking about that this notion of renting things is is not going to lose steam we're only going to move more and more towards utilizing things renting things when we need them and for that matter a business at its heart has to produce goods that last so that it itself can survive and truly make an impact and be innovative
0: would you say longevity the intention of building things to last is the most fundamental part of the zz Drigg story The idea that people are attempting to primarily own or make an investment in things that have that thoughtfulness in their construction, in their design, in their execution.
1: At the end of the day, furniture, when made well, most importantly, the caveat is when made well, it truly is the most circular product out there. It's why antiques exist. It's why vintage furniture exists. It's really quite simple. So for that reason, there's no reason why we shouldn't be sharing it. We shouldn't be renting it for when we need it. But the rub is that high quality, long lasting, proverbially sustainable products are going to cost more. There's more thought that goes into the construction. Obviously, there's more inner workings that go into producing the product. There's higher quality materials. So if it costs more, therein lies the reason why it makes so much sense to just rent it when you need it. You know, it's easy, we allow you to rent and every dollar you spend renting counts toward the purchase price. So that way it really, we, we see it as the most enjoyable and accessible and convenient way to bring high quality things into your life and to utilize those. So that way you avoid having to obviously make the purchase outright, make that long-term commitment, you know, have to clean it, have to restore it, have to move it, have to store it, all the things that come with traditional ownership. So not only does it allow so much more opportunity to utilize and enjoy things that are built well, that have longevity and quality, But it also, you know, takes away a lot of the other pain points too.
0: Well, I wanted to ask a bit about your sort of initial interest in this field because your background, I'm right in saying Whitney, was in finance. And I know you were focused a lot on the furniture industry and the world of design. And you had these insights into how wasteful, how unsustainable so much of the industry was, this urgency for for change. What was it, though, at that moment that prompted you rather than just washing your hands at the scale of this problem, or um, maybe, I don't know, shifting sites to an industry or a sector that was already further down that sustainable road, what prompted you to say, actually, I'm going to get stuck in? What was the motivation?
1: You are absolutely spot on. So one, um, what feels like now a past life was working in finance and, and studying these global manufacturers and these retailers. And you know, by diving into their balance sheets, you can understand that this furniture has almost a planned obsolescence. It's meant to give out after a certain number of years so that a company can make their best financial guess about when the customer, the consumer will be walking back through their doors to make that purchase again, You know, all in an effort to have the best shot on goal of calculating LTV lifetime value or CLV customer lifetime value. The most important thing I'd say was I come from a family of designers, both professionally and personally, or, you know, have a passion for it. And then I studied art history in college and I actually worked my way up in finance. I didn't graduate with knowing economics or or having that as my major. But why I bring that up is because on nights and weekends, I just loved creating space and I would you know put a fair amount of effort into my own apartment however small it was here in New York City and then friends and friends of friends would ask me like hey Wit, can you help me with my space or can you help me with my office space and so loved it and really got to know this burgeoning design scene this is around like 2014 2016 Brooklyn design kind of the industrial loft aesthetic was really at a fever pitch I was meeting with these designers and I would naively think, oh my gosh, they're selling this coffee table for $3,000, they must be doing so well. And then you get to realize that, wow, they're hardly making a living because to produce furniture, it requires machinery, machinery takes up space, space is not cheap in New York, and ultimately the revenue is so inconsistent, yet they're making these incredible goods that are meant to outlive us. So that was really the moment where I was experiencing this cognitive dissonance of, oh my gosh, furniture, again, when made well, it should outlive us. But yet there's so many huge behemoths out there, furniture manufacturers and retailers that are making furniture that has this planned obsolescence that's both desecrating for the environment, but also really damaging to customers' pocketbooks. You know, you have to just repeat this purchase over and over and over again. Nothing with these major retailers No one's offering lifetime warranties and guarantees, which is how our parents and our grandparents used to purchase furniture largely. So that was it. That was like, okay, light bulb moment. Something's got to change here. You know, there's there's no reason why we can't share in these pieces if they are going to outlive us. And so that was the genesis of creating ZZ.
0: Whitney, anyone listening must be struck by your evident passion for this sector, your deep interest in finding long-term solutions. But one thing that really stands out to me is the scale of that ambition. You're obviously pretty fearless about getting stuck into some big challenges. You're looking at addressing a lack of sustainability, bringing in a more ethical approach, making design more accessible, supporting smaller makers. These are all objectives that are... Well, they're easier to talk about than they are to do. Have you found it scared potential collaborators or investors? Have you had to win people over?
1: It's fascinating to see that there is now some others in the space. There are other companies in the space. You know, when ZZ first started in 2014, it was really. It was really just us as the new kid on the block. But now there are other companies that exist in the space. And so it shows that there is a market and it shows that the consumer is willing to test out, i.e. try and rent furniture. But with fundraising, you know, I've been through a few rounds and the first round were friendlies, as is often said, or angel investors, whatnot, just individuals who saw the need for it and saw that something needed to change and also had an appreciation for furniture when made well and saw that there was so much nefarious construction and so much product that wasn't built to last out in the market and then from there we've been very very particular about how we bring on funding to zizi and i'm proud to say that we truly only have impact investors on our proverbial cap table as it said so what that means is our investors are held to the same returns as traditional venture capital firms. You know, they do have to return a profit and invest in companies that will succeed and thrive, but with a very critical eye into making sure that these companies and in their, in their portfolio is not just doing well, but doing good.
0: Whitney, I wanted to ask you about your B Corp certification, because you tackled that during the pandemic, as if there were not enough for businesses to deal with during that time. Now, I understand it is pretty challenging to secure that certification, a rigorous process. What did it mean for you as an endorsement of the values of ZZ Driggs? And if I might ask, why would you try to do something as tricky as that when you were already facing all the other challenges of the pandemic?
1: We didn't know this going in, but submitting and applying to become a B Corp, the application itself is almost like a roadmap into how a company can level up across different ways of being more sustainable or interacting with their customers to a greater and more poignant way. The B Corp assessment, the B Impact Assessment, as it's called, looks at five different pillars of a company. So governance, customers, community, environmental leadership, and your employees, and so just going into this assessment it's a multiple choice assessment for the most part. The first round of it is and there's some other rounds if you qualify and you reach this threshold of points. But the first round is multiple choice. And so I mentioned that because you know you can see in real time how you score when you're selecting these choices. So you know certain questions around like employee ownership of the company. If you're giving out more in ownership of shares to the company then of course you know your points can go up. So I mention this because Even if a company doesn't want to or doesn't have the bandwidth to become a B Corp, just hopping into this assessment allows you to kind of get a roadmap into leveling up across different pillars of your organization to be a more sustainably minded or a more ethically minded company or have greater and more insightful ways in which you can level up with your DEI. It's just not known that that's possible. So I want to show that. But in terms of its effect with ZZ, and after we gained the certification, you know, for us, it was a way to just make ourselves very, very known that we were not in this camp of greenwashing. You know, greenwashing is so real. It is such a marketing ploy. We've all seen it. We all kind of throw our eyebrows and say like, oh, oh, really, you know, is, is, this, is this really the case or is this a marketing ploy? We know that we bring on furniture that's meant to last a minimum of 50 years. We have an application. We go through a thorough vetting process with every designer that we bring on board and every piece of furniture we bring on board. We are making a financial commitment to longevity and to quality furniture and to the designers that we feature and bring onto the platform. So we wanted the certification to show that we are committed. And you know we're not just talking the talk, but we're walking the walk. It was incredible to gain that certification just to show that this is not all about the bottom line, but in order to do well, we have to do good too. And in the greatest climate crisis and existential crisis that we're all experiencing, it was so important to us to make it known that
0: we care. You seem to bring that same sense of purpose to how you run the show in terms of the internal culture in ZZ Driggs, implementing the same kind of values, inclusivity, supporting your staff. Do you think it's possible as a good entrepreneur, running a great business, not to do that? To what degree do you think the internal workings of your operation have to match the outward facing part of the business? Is that just a no brainer now?
1: We had a little mini epiphany, if you will, where we realized like sustainability is not only external, aka attributed to the products that we offer, but it has to be internal too. So what do I mean by that? Well, It relates to your employees and your workforce. We've seen how impactful the great resignation is with different businesses. It takes a lot to to find employees, to interview employees, to onboard employees. It's an expensive endeavor. It takes a lot of time from your already in place team. Why I bring that up is because... We're all realizing, like, we need to take care of our people. We need to make sure that they're feeling safe and happy and seen and appreciated in order to help the business grow and in order to accommodate the business needs in the long run so that everyone wins. And so what does that look like? So for us, another learning from B Corp, you know, doing the B Impact Assessment was doing anonymous surveys. Every quarter, we do an anonymous feedback survey. Every quarter, we do... As simple as it's called the Quarterly People Happiness Survey. Every quarter, we're just always checking in with our team. And that's just part of it. You know, beyond that, it's simple things like offering more time off. Like every month, we as a whole team, we take a JDO, which stands for a joint day off. So every month we get at least one three-day weekend. We all take the day off. (laughs) And so that way you don't return to work. You know, when you, you take a day off and you return to work and maybe you've got like a whole stack of emails that you have to catch up on or like Slack conversations that you have to get up to speed on. So we do that in order to just allow for that breather and we come back without that anxiety of having to catch up on work every month, a three-day weekend. If there's a holiday that allows a three-day weekend, then great. We get two three-day weekends a month. And then we also have two week-long JWOs, joint weeks off as a team. And then beyond that, you know, we... Beyond that, you know, it's. I have to say, like, a lot of these things are truly what, like, I would wish and want. Coming out of finance, where it was like 16, 18, sometimes 20-hour days, I just made a commitment to myself, like, I never want to experience that lifestyle again. My work even, I think, suffered from it. You know, you, you as a human, you as a human brain can only can only give out a quota of a certain number of hours of quality work. So we do have to shut off, you know, to give ourselves a breather. So what does that mean? That means after 6 p.m., we turn off our communications. You know, some people like to work in the evenings, fine, but we really, really try to encourage and monitor that it's no more than an eight-hour day, of course, with breaks in between. There's no communications on the weekends. It's really just taking care of our team so that everyone can have that work-life balance.
0: If anybody goes on to your website, Whitney, they'll no doubt be unable to tear themselves away from the stars of the show, the pieces. I don't want to go through the a whole conversation with you and not bring up that aspect, your obvious passion for great furniture, for wonderful design. One of the things I think that Zizi does cleverly is introduce contemporary pieces and older things with a more interesting provenance. What's that process like? Tell us a bit about the, the products themselves.
1: We offer both contemporary and, as we call it, collectible products. So contemporary are made by independent emerging designers, and then the collectible products are antiques and vintage items. So we work with a handful of dealers and suppliers of these pieces that have their pulse on the uh, global antique market, if you will. I'm a bit furniture obsessed. Like, furniture designers are my rock stars, and I love furniture because I think it's such an artifact of history. You know, it's such a conduit of history, and it's very... It's like utilitarian art, as we say at easy, and it's really uniting. With the collectible pieces, with the antique and vintage, you know, it's, it's so fascinating because one thing that we do, and I wish we could devote even endless time to, is researching these pieces. So it's so important because a lot of antiques, it's just verbal history. You're very lucky if you can find anything that's written down about it, you know, or maybe it might come with an even heftier price tag. So it's, it's important for us to capture that that oral history and make sure that we share that because that's how it gets passed on. It's such a beautiful thing because they are such conduits of story and of narrative and we get to utilise them at the same time.
0: It's an amazing journey over only, what, seven or eight years. You've had so many achievements. You keep racking up the accomplishments. I wonder strategically, structurally, what's next to look forward to?
1: We see all the problem and pain points with the supply chain course, don't we all? One silver lining of this all is that, you know, with ZZ, we work with local designers, we work with American designers and American and North American manufacturers. So we're we're pretty localized, you know, all things considered. There's nothing coming from overseas. And it was pretty lucky how this worked out because now our lead times are just not long and we hold a lot of inventory in order to meet rental demand. And so this inventory is available on demand both for rent or for purchase and it's largely new inventory so it's awesome to see that we're working with a lot of customers and and members of the trade, interior designers, businesses, with being able to fill their furniture needs when they want for as long as they need, whether they want to purchase or buy and it's available on demand with quick ship. So we're excited about that, that's a recent offering if you will, both furniture for rent on demand but also furniture for purchase. So we've got that and then you know expanding the ZZ footprint to different geographies is on the plate too, coming up soon.
0: Whitney Francis Folk, founder and CEO of ZZ Driggs, and you can learn more about the brand and their great story, just head to zZdriggs.com. Next up, we're welcoming Sian Fernandez-Wong, who founded the innovative membership service for luxury handbags, Cocoon, alongside her co-founder, Matt, in 2019. Cocoon's committed to the promotion of circular fashion with more choice, less waste and proper sustainability. Sian, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme. We'll talk more about Cocoon in a second. But first up, just give us a little bit of your personal origin story, if you like. How did you get to be where we find you today, Sian?
2: I have spent the majority of my career in luxury and certainly very much in digital. I did nearly seven years at the net Group, joining them in 2009. And then I joined Vestia Collective where I was vice president of Europe. And then after spending most of my time on the Eurostar, loved the role, loved the company, but just the travel was super difficult. It just became unsustainable in that way. And so I was looking for a role in London and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Did I want to start my own thing? Did I want to go join a new business? Spent quite a bit of time soul searching in terms of how I could bring my passions as well as what I'd enjoyed doing, which is essentially building businesses within the fashion tech space. And so where I could bring that all together and, and do something new. And so, you. I knew sustainability was a thread that needed to run very deeply in whichever I did next. I had done quite a lot of research into rental and what that looked like in terms of the fashion space. And I'd looked into it and, and, you know, understood the pros and cons of the pre-owned space and what that was looking like. And so it was fairly serendipitous being introduced to Matt. We had a few connections within my co-founder and a few connections within the fashion industry. He'd originally thought handbags would be a great idea. So he was kicking that idea about. And so when we were introduced and we were talking through things and, and he was like, I think handbags could be a great category. And I went away and I did some research and ran the numbers and looked into it. Essentially I went and I built a PL and thought I need to figure out how this is going to work because there are so many questions that I have. And I came back and I went, okay, well I've built them. Built a PL and like a business plan, and what I think it could look like. And it fell together fairly naturally from there. So there was a certain amount of luck that was involved in us meeting and being put together because we knew quite a lot of the same people and, and we live in similar neighborhoods. And we've sort of possibly even been in the same building at the same time together when I was at Netaporte. However, this was the first time us coming together in that way. And so I. Officially started working on the business in August 2019. And so we'd had a bit of a beta version launched, and very much the view was to get the business ready for an official launch and what that looked like. And obviously, going live late November 2019, three months before a global pandemic, when your business is really about people being social and leaving the house to a certain extent. And it's because it's a very immediate business. It's not like you're buying something that you will wear in six months' time. It's very much about the year and now. And when people aren't leaving their house, it means, you know, it can be a very scary time. I was very grateful at that point to not be doing party dresses.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, 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 sector, a sector advantage. Yeah. So look, let's talk a little bit then about what Cocoon does and some of the kind of fundamentals. You've underscored already that sustainability was key. Yeah. Cocoon, it does sustainable. It does circular. It yeah does a democratising job, it's about accessibility as well, along with all the things that we know and and love about luxury brands, indulgence, all the rest of it. What are maybe one or two of the key things alongside the sustainability? Is it the fact that you can open up that newness, that excitement to a demographic that wouldn't otherwise experience?
2: Yeah, So there's a few things in that. And for me personally, I love taking a thread of a zeitgeist and a niche and a desire and building it into something and going, can we change attitudes and can we change opinions and can we make something that is new and build that into what people are doing in the everyday? So for me, it's really around how do we build A business and what Cocoon does is enable circularity because we have three real focuses and it enables a circular motion in terms of accessing luxury and that's important for a couple of different reasons one the desire for newness is not going away anytime soon you know I think part of what makes fashion so exciting is that newness is that beautiful thing and that shiny bright gorgeousness. And so the desire for that is not going away, but it's also at the same time, the conflict that we have with that is that it can promote a very unsustainable way of consuming. And so how do you try and meet those two things together? And so with that, that's one of the biggest things that Cocoon allows for is that you can tap into that desire for newness without necessarily the guilt that comes along with being able to do it. Because ultimately. Most people don't have an unlimited bank balance. They would prefer to have something that's luxury, that's well-made, that does a better job in terms of sustainability just by the fact that it has been handcrafted and there's a better focus on quality and materials. So you've got that side of it. You're extending the wear of an item. You're making sure that it's in use for a longer period of time. So that's what's really important to me is around how we can develop that mindfulness, that really considered approach to what you consume and when. And if it means that rather than going into a high street or a fast fashion store and buying a handbag that's going to look great for a week or a month, and then it's going to be discarded, rather than allowing the customer to do that, but giving them far better alternatives, that to me is a really positive, that's a win. And so that really also drives the ideology behind the business too
0: well let me ask you about this sort of sharing i don't mean so much the sort of sharing economy i mean the actual the physical sharing handbags sort of deeply personal it's funny i was chatting to some colleagues and they said you know if somebody says to you oh i have a lipstick or i have one in my handbag i would never you'd never go for a you'd never go for a rummage you would always pass bag. it feels like an extension of someone's personal space it's very there's a real intimacy actually too which i think is really interesting is that then tricky to navigate because you are kind of commodifying that space a little bit, and you're certainly inviting engagement with more people in a a sense. Are those things in opposition at all?
2: No, look, I don't think so, actually, and it's a really interesting way of putting it. I think that what you're doing is you're inviting someone to develop a relationship with our entire collection. So they feel as though all of the bags in our collection are part of their wardrobe. And so for that period of time, when they do access the bag, they're able to use it or not. And then they return it to us and and hopefully take the lipstick out before they do. But there's a real sense of whilst the member has the bag for that time, you know, they do form attachments. And sometimes the attachment is so great that they don't want to return it. And they'll send us a lovely little email saying, I love this. I can't give it back. I would like to buy it, please
0: let me ask you about that then because if we're talking about the way these are also just beautiful design objects aren't they in their own right from the likes of chanel gucci fendi whoever it might be what's the relationship with those big brands because in some ways lots of these big players and their umbrella yeah. owners seem to have kind of really embraced the idea they seem to tentatively embrace certainly resale market a little bit some of these gray areas they're very interested in promoting the idea of them as archivists stewards of these amazing things from past collections how do you make sense of it at the moment is there because there's still a bit of conflict i always sense they're not quite decided how they feel about it yet what, um, how do you characterise I, I,
2: I think it's you know obviously i can't talk for any brand and so we have different relationships with different brands Not all of our relationships are wholesale relationships. We buy a lot of vintage by certain brands because we know that there's less sensitivity with vintage for certain brands. Different brands have very different points of view in terms of their sustainability agenda, how they perceive their brand. Every brand is going to have at its core trying to preserve full price, trying to preserve And grow their sales. So there is a certain amount of protection. What we hope that we do very well, and and certainly the aim is to do it better than anybody else, is understand that approach to protecting a brand. What we do is present the brand and present the product in a way that is upholding those, those values. So that we wouldn't, you know, whether it's down to our photography or even our packaging, we hope to, while still being mindful about cost and not doing packaging for packaging's sake and all the rest of it. But really think about how we can make sure that the experience itself is something that the brand would be mindful of and be considerate of and be happy with at the end of the day.
0: Last thought, perhaps, what are you most excited about as we look ahead? What's coming up? Can you... Offer us any little tidbits that will get people even more excited than I'm sure they already are.
2: (laughs) Big focus for us going into the autumn is new product. We have some new brands coming on board that we've not previously stocked, as well as really refreshing the product with existing brands that we already stocked. So that's really exciting. We are looking to also continue to improve on our memberships and how you access and what types of membership you access, because ultimately we have a membership to different price points in terms of our membership, but just changing that slightly and and evolving on that. So that's really great. And then just continue to grow the business. We have plans to expand into new markets, not this year, that will come sort of next year and the year after. We are not yet at this point looking to diversify and, you know, start doing footwear. We love our category. We know that we can be experts in it and just continue to
0: grow and build the business. Sian Fernandez-Wong, co-founder of Cocoon. Explore the subscription plans and become a member, giving you access to an unrivaled handbag wardrobe. Head now to cocoon.club. That's all for this week. The program was mixed and edited by Jack Jewers with help from Laura Kramer. My thanks to them both this week. And of course, thanks once again to all of the crew at ZZ Driggs and Cocoon. You can listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with The Rich Archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye. And thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.